0: Well, you can open up your Bibles to James chapter 1. It's actually an appropriate text for us this morning as we we desperately need wisdom. James chapter 1. I've I've often, as a parent of four children, I've often had the thought that parenting small children... um, maybe under the age of three, four, something like that. Uh, But I've often had the thought that parenting small children is sometimes more like being a butler than it is a parent. And one of the realities of small children is that they constantly ask parents for things. Mom, can I have a drink? Mom, can I go outside? Mom, can I have a bagel? Dad, where's mom? That's how it happens. And I think there are two main reasons for all of the requests from small children. The first reason is small children cannot do things on their own. They're just not capable of it. Our three-year-old Gray can't reach the sink to get himself a glass of water. So what's he gonna do? He has to ask for it. He can't make pizza on his own. And so he needs to tell us that he's hungry and he needs to ask for food. He can't get his shoes on very well at this point, on his own. And so he's got to ask. Small children recognize their need for help. And then the second reason that they request help so much and they ask parents for things is because over their short lifespan, when they have asked from mom and dad, they have received They know they need help and so they ask and mom and dad have come through in the past and they've been able to help and the the children know that and so they continue to ask. And they know that when they ask mom or dad for a glass of water that they're not going to be rebuked for asking for a glass of water. It may inconvenience mom or dad at the moment. They may be doing something else but they will happily get up and get the child a glass of water. And so the kids are confident that if they ask, they'll get the water sooner rather than later. And so this morning, as we continue in this series on James 1, 2 through 15, and we think about approaching adversity in our lives, I want you to keep that image of a small child who needs something and who asks mom and dad for it. I want you to keep that image in front of you, and I want you to think about this passage from Matthew chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it on the screen. I want this to form the foundation of what we're going to discuss this morning. Here's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And this last verse, verse 11, is the key to the whole thing. This is why it works, that you can ask and it will be given to you. If I'm evil, if I am prone to sin at times, if I'm grumpy, if I'm tired, and I delight in giving good things and good gifts to my children when they ask for them, then how much greater is the willingness of our good heavenly Father? to give good things, and to delight in showering gifts on his children as they ask for them. And that principle, that reality of God being willing to give and wanting to give is particularly true when it comes to trials and adversity. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So James 1, 2 through 15, we began last week, And we're looking at four practices necessary to respond to adversity with wisdom. Four practices necessary to respond to adversity with wisdom. And we looked at the first one of these last week. Cooperate with God's purpose in verses 2 through 4. Let me read that to you. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James is not calling for us here to ignore the difficulty or the pain of trials. He's not saying, buck up, get with it, deal with it. is not what he's calling us to do. He's calling us here to look through the trial, to look past the trial, and to be able to see God's hand at work. And God's hand is at work in us to produce endurance, patience, steadfastness, and his hand is at work through the trials, ultimately to produce spiritual wholeness. Trials, times of testing, provide the opportunity for us to be shaped and formed in a whole bunch of different areas. The steadfastness branches out into every area of our character and our, our disposition. And we can be changed all over the place if we will cooperate with what God's doing in the midst of difficulty. If we will look through the trial and see his purpose, and his purpose is to sanctify us and to make us more complete and more like Jesus Christ. Now, if you look back down at verse four, you can see there at the end, he says, the goal is that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Now with that goal of lacking in nothing in mind, I want to turn to our second practice in verses five to eight. Call out for God's wisdom by faith. So God uses trials to move us to the point where we lack nothing. That's the ultimate goal. But the reality is that we all still lack in this life. We won't reach that goal until we're finally with the Lord after death or when he returns. We all still lack in this life. And the main thing that you and I lack when it comes to trials is that we lack the wisdom that we need to find joy in the midst of trials. Look at verse five. I love how James does this, right? The goal is for you to be lacking in nothing, and then he uses that same word to begin verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom. We're not quite to the goal yet. We're not even close to the goal of lacking in nothing. We do lack, and we lack wisdom. Trials expose us. We feel inadequate. We know we're inadequate. We're not complete. We're not whole, and we lack wisdom wisdom. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to learn in the midst of this difficulty. And because that is true, because we lack, then we need to ask. Now, in order to be in a position to gain wisdom, to grow in the functional know-how of life and how to apply God's word, then we have to recognize that we don't have it, that we're not complete yet, we don't have all the wisdom we need. I mean, just like my children. If they don't know that they're lacking in something, then they won't ask. But they feel very acutely that they're thirsty and they need water. And so they, they ask for it. The problem for most of us as adults is we don't think we lack wisdom. We don't see the need to ask because we, we believe we've got it all together. We have all the wisdom that we need. We're generally proud people, especially in the midst of adversity. And so we sort of dig in our heels and we look at the trial and we refuse to see God's purposes in growing us to maturity. So we we don't ask because we maybe don't think we need it, but there's another reason we don't ask. And James hits this one head on. One of the reasons we don't ask is because maybe we don't actually believe that God is willing to give us wisdom when we ask. And we don't believe what is true of his character. We have a misunderstanding of who God is, the one we're asking. And so James here in verse 5 commands us to ask, and he gives us that command because of who God is. And so you won't ask until you know that these qualities are true of God. So in verse 5, you have a, a description of the character of God. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. He gives us A positive quality of God, something God possesses, and then he gives us a negative quality, something that God doesn't possess that is not true of him. So the positive quality, he says, that God gives generously. The idea here is, is that when we ask God for things, he gives with a single, undivided focus. He is intentional and purposeful and genuine about giving us wisdom. Later in this passage, down in verse 8, you have the opposite of this quality of God. In verse 8, human beings are described as double-minded. They're split in two ways. They're unstable. They're confused. That's not God. God has a singular focus. When we ask, he gives because he is a God of faithfulness and integrity and he has a singular focus on seeing us grow to be more like Jesus Christ. And as he gives wisdom directly and generously, he doesn't give with reproach. This is not a part of his disposition at all. I mean, You, you probably have experienced someone who gives with reproach. This is part of how we operate as human beings. Yeah, we may give. We may let someone borrow something, we may give someone some item that we, that we possess, but oftentimes we do it in a begrudging manner. We give, but we complain about the person who's asking. We find fault with that person for even asking. Have you ever had someone make you feel guilty for asking them for something? Maybe it's something you need, but you know if you ask them, you're going to get the riot act read to you. You know, you're going to feel badly for even coming to them and asking. They may mock you. They may make fun of you for asking. That's not God. God does not operate like that. That is not his character. He gives without reproach. He doesn't even have a second thought about giving wisdom to us when we ask. Giving is never an imposition for God, and he does it graciously and generously. The main point in what James is saying here is that we ask God for wisdom because of who he is. And this, is, this goes under a lot of the reason that we don't ask God for things. We don't have the right view of him. I mean, Hebrews 11 talks about this specifically and says that faith requires us to have the right understanding of God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe two things, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith means believing the right things about God. You have to have the right view of God in order to be motivated to ask him for wisdom and help. He is faithful to give when we ask him. Look at the end of verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. I mean, it's a very simple statement that sometimes we might just read over. When we ask, this is a God who gives with singular focus and without reproach. This is who he is. But when we ask, that's the character of God. But we have to ask with a particular disposition and with a particular focus. We must come to God with faith. And verses six through eight give us the disposition that we have to have as we approach God for wisdom in the midst of trials. Look there, verse six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. You can see two general approaches to asking God. We can ask in faith, or we can ask and come doubting. And doubt here is the equivalent of what he describes in verse 8 as being double-minded, being unstable, being split in your loyalties. Now, faith here is not simply asking and being confident that you're going to get what you ask for. That's not what James means by faith here. Faith asks without doubting because faith rests on a right perception of God. Faith asks because it knows who God is. And so if I tend to think of God as sort of a bit grumpy and he's sort of sitting in his easy chair and I've got to go up and ask him for something and he's going to be annoyed and bugged with me and That really isn't a caricature. Lots of Christians tend to think of God in something similar to that. He's annoyed when we ask him for things. It's an imposition on him. And if I tend to think of God that way, as frustrated with me for asking, then I'm not going to ask him in faith. I'm not going to come to him. My loyalties will be split because I don't really trust him And his promise that he will give. True faith is based on that promise in verse 5. Ask and it will be given him. And it believes that because it knows that God is generous. With the wisdom that he gives to his children. But then the other side. Not asking in faith is the one who doubts. And the one who doubts verse 8 is double minded. Unstable in all his ways. Now. Let me just encourage you with this. James is not talking here about someone who maybe has a a couple days or a week of doubt in their life. And they struggle with the right perception of God. He's not talking about someone who occasionally slips back into this understanding of God as, as sort of annoyed with us. But overall, this person is pursuing a right understanding of God. That's not what James is talking about. The doubt, the double minded man here is an entire way of life. This is a person who is split between earthly wisdom and the wisdom from above. Oftentimes, this person who doubts will ask God for things for selfish reasons. I mean, James talks about this in chapter 4 and verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There are many times where we don't have God's goals in mind when we ask. We have our own ambitions at the center of our asking. And when we do that, we treat God like this all-powerful genie who can pander to our wants and our needs and our passions instead of his. And so we doubt. To ask in faith means that I so know God's character and so trust his purposes that I am committed to his work in me, even in the midst of trials. And I want so badly to be grown to completeness and maturity that I will ask him for wisdom so that his work can be accomplished in me. That's to ask in faith. To ask with doubt means to be filled with pride and selfish ambition and to be tossed around spiritually, like the waves of the sea. And so in this case, to ask with doubt means that instead of looking through the trial to the God behind it and the work that he's doing, I only look at the trial. And I only think about self. And I have selfish ambition at the core of how I'm responding to adversity. Now throughout this passage, I've I've tried to show you that these commands that begin with the word let are key to the practices that we implement to deal with adversity, to approach it. We've seen two more of these here in verses 5 and 6. But if you jump back up to verse 4, you see the first one. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Look through the trial to God's work. Verses 5 and 6. Let him ask God for wisdom. Verse 6. Let him ask in faith. Ask the God who can be relied upon and who promises to give us wisdom when we need it. And now in verses 9 and 10, we get two more let commands to us. And here we are told to boast in particular circumstances and how God is going to use those circumstances in our lives. So in verses 9 and 10, we have our third practice here. So cooperate with God's purpose, call out for God's wisdom by faith, and in verses 9 through 11, consider your circumstances. Now, when you get to verses 9 through 11, it's very important that you remember James did not randomly drop these verses in the middle of a discussion on trials and testing. He didn't sort of pull these out of his notebook over here and slide them in at this point and they have no connection to what goes before or what comes after. If you look down to verse twelve, you can see that James is still talking about trials. Verse twelve: Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love Him. So, remaining steadfast—the same word that's used up in in uh, verses three and four—is um, used there. And so he's still talking about and focused on how we approach adversity. So in these verses, James is teaching us another way to respond, another practice to respond to trials in our lives. But what exactly is he teaching us here? So there's a let command here as well. You can see it in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and then... Another group of people are addressed with that let command and the rich in his humiliation. So this let command covers the lowly and it covers the rich. Who are these people? Well, the lowly are those who are economically at the bottom of the ladder. They're poor. They don't have a lot of material resources. They're people who don't matter socially. They're not significant in the culture. The rich, in verse 10, are the opposite. They have all the material resources they need, or at least a significant amount, more than the poor, certainly, and enough to make it through life without, without too much of a worry. They have status in the culture. Now, I'm convinced that both the lowly and the rich here are talking about believers. He calls them brother The lowly brother in verse 9, and I think that carries over to the rich in verse 10 as well. So James is addressing two types of believers here that are in different socioeconomic cultural situations. And he's instructing them here that they ultimately both need to be aware of their situation and they need to assess their situation and look past their material goods and their cultural status. They need to look past that and see what God is doing in the midst of their lives. So let's start with the lowly here in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. One of the most common uh, types of adversity that people in our world face is economic adversity. Oftentimes here in America, in our Church in particular were shielded from this in many ways. On one of my trips to Nepal, I had the opportunity to visit a slum in the capital city of Kathmandu. Nepal is not a wealthy country by any standard, but when you go to a slum in one of the poorer countries in the world, you're getting close to the very bottom of the ladder economically and socially. And it's hard to even put into words what the living situation is for 7,000 people who are living in that slum in that city by the side of the river there. They're destitute. They're sick. They're diseased. They don't have anything hardly at their disposal. I mean, those people are the lowest of the low. But this word lowly here doesn't only apply to folks like that. There are are all kinds of levels of economic and social difficulty and struggle. And no doubt there are people in our church that fit this category. James tells them here that their position, those who don't matter in the eyes of the world, their response needs to be to boast in their exaltation. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think this is the same idea as he gives us in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What kind of a person finds joy in the midst of a difficulty? The same type of person who is able to boast in their exaltation as a lowly person. They see their status as someone who is an outcast, who is poor, who doesn't have the material goods that they need. They're insignificant in the world, and they're able to boast or find joy in that because they know what God is doing, because they know they belong to him, and that's their primary love and affection. They're able to look through their position as a lowly person, and they're able to see the work that God is doing. I mean, I think James 2 and verse 5 gives us a a great picture of this. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? That's the exaltation that the lowly economically are focused on. But it's interesting here that the lowly are to boast in their exaltation. In verse 10, the rich are to boast in their exaltation. Humiliation. They are to assess their situation, to recognize that they have what they need more than what they need economically and socially, and they are to rejoice in humiliation. Well, what does that mean? For the rich, rather than finding their identity and their sense of security in their money and their wealth and their material goods, The believer who has wealth glories in the fact that he is identified with Christ, and he's identified with the lowly. I mean, the world considers the work of the cross foolishness, and it's in that foolishness that the rich must find his primary identity. Why? Well, he explains in the rest of verse 10 and verse 11, because Verse 10, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. All human wealth and status is temporary. And the rich believer should know that. And he should believe that. And he understands that he can't take his wealth with him. In fact, James would say here, the the temporary nature of wealth and money and status ought to be a very strong warning to rich believers to be very careful about pursuing the acquisition of wealth as a primary goal in their lives. I mean, money is is an interesting thing in the Bible, isn't it? It's clear from Scripture that there's nothing inherently wrong about being wealthy. It's not sinful to have money at your disposal. And in fact, the Bible encourages hard work that leads to material gain and wealth. But at the same time, the Bible does not lack for warnings to those who are comfortable and rich. In one sense, having wealth, I think, and the reason James mentions it here is because this is a a test. This is a a trial in some ways for people to have. Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, Lord, give me that trial of of a yacht and a vacation home. I'll take it, right? But listen again to the words of Jesus in Matthew 19. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this is a strong warning to rich people. And those of us who are comfortable financially and have what we need and in many parts of the world would be considered rich, we look at this and we think, well, I'm the exception. Yeah, it's difficult for other people, but I'm the exception. I can handle wealth and material goods. But the book of James is also filled with warnings to those who are rich. It's very difficult, according to the Bible, to have wealth and to have status in the world, and to maintain a biblical perspective on it. That's why James says what he says here. The rich has to boast in his humiliation. He needs to understand that his status in this world, his material goods will pass away. They will not last forever. And so having wealth is a test. It's a different sort of test than poverty. But it is a test, nonetheless. I mean, there's a reason that Proverbs puts it like this. Proverbs 30, verses seven to nine. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And you can see here, the author of Proverbs prays for God to give him what is needful for him for that day. Anything above or anything below that can become a test and a temptation toward a particular vice called greed or I love the word avarice for this. And when we talk about avarice or greed, what we're saying is an immoderate love of possessions. Our hearts love our possessions more than they ought to. They give undue attention to material goods and wealth. And the amazing thing is this can happen to the rich and to the poor. It can happen to both. And we slide into avarice or greed when we're no longer in control of our possessions and our desires toward our possessions, but they are in control of us. They dominate us. One author put it this way. The point is that a fully human life is lived in a way free from being enslaved to our stuff. Our possessions are meant to serve our need and our humanness rather than our lives being centered around service to our possessions and our desires for them. And James here, I think, places this warning to both the poor and the rich. He places it here in a discussion of adversity because there may be no greater test for most people than how they respond to economic economic situation. It's significant. What do you do? How do you relate to material possessions? Is your heart controlled? Do you find your sense of security in what you have? Or do you look through what you have and boast in the Lord? That's what James is calling us to here. I think Jeremiah 9 is the perfect verse to sum up the argument that James is making here. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And I think that's the bottom line. That's the bottom line for us today. Ask for wisdom in the midst of adversity. Consider your circumstances. Know where your temptations lie. Look through them. Look through your circumstances to the Lord and see God's work in you. I hope that these words from James here will be a challenge and an encouragement to you in that direction. Let's pray. Father, we certainly need wisdom all the time. And particularly now, as so much is happening in our culture, we need you and we need your wisdom. Help us to ask. Motivate us to ask by your Holy Spirit. Father, you are good, you're generous, you you give without reproach. You're not grumpy because we ask and ask over and over again, but you delight to give good gifts to your children. So I pray that we would come in faith, we would come confidently to you because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have direct access to your throne now because of him. And I pray, Lord, that as we ask, that we would consider our circumstances and we would evaluate where we're at, the particular temptations of whether we're lowly or whether we're well off, and that we would look through our circumstances to you and we would boast only in the fact that we know you as the only true God. Encourage us and challenge us now with these words. Thank you for all you've done. In Christ's name we pray.